Hello and welcome to the Coming Out of the Basement podcast for the third week of May 2012. I'm your co-host, Bill S. Preston Esquire, and with me is your co-host, Ted Theodore Logan. And we are Wild Stallions. That's right. And we will never be a super band until we get Eddie Van Halen on guitar. I mean, like, we Eddie Van Halen. I... Yeah, or maybe, you know, it's Carlos and BJ, but how could you tell? How you doing, Carlos? I'm doing pretty well. I had a really excellent geek weekend. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I can already tell that uh, the audio is going to go much better this time around. So yeah. Okay, I'm going to cross my fingers this entire time just to make sure that happens. Um, I think we can. I think we can pretty certainly blame it on the thunderstorm. Uh, last time there was a pretty large thunderstorm to the degree of, of there was concern of th- flooding and, and there was lightning all over the place and I lost power during the uh, the recording. Yes, but- and the tech issues reveal that I am in fact a Nexus 1.3 Alpha replicant, Absolutely. but uh, that that will be our secret. I always suspected. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, how was your weekend? Uh, weekend was pretty good. Got a lot of stuff done. Um, as far as like geek stuff goes, it didn't get a whole lot in. We we didn't play our Mutants and Masterminds campaign, um, which I mean we we only play that like once every other week, anyways. But yep. um, we're we're starting to get into the real meat of the campaign, and and all the clues and mysteries are being lifted. So yeah, um, a lot of fun. A lot of League of Legends this weekend, so that was a lot of fun. Very cool. Uh, on Friday, I actually went to a geeky bachelor party, which was really interesting. Um, so a friend of mine, actually one of the guys from the coming out of the basement blog is getting married and his bachelor party was on Friday. So it started out at uh, Rudy's barbecue, which is this barbecue place here in Austin. You know, it was, it was pretty decent. And from there it went to the Alamo draft house. And, uh, for people who don't know, the Alamo draft house is this really awesome theater. Uh, it's a chain that started here in Austin and they serve food and drinks and alcohol and stuff like that, which, you know, other theaters that that's really, I think become popular around the country, but like the the draft house is something special, right? It's it's film lovers. They do really amazing things. They participate in like South by Southwest and all that things. And they're having a special series this summer. Have you heard Have you heard about it, any of that? No, I haven't. So the very first movie of this special series was on Friday, and uh, so this is right at the beginning. Uh, somebody came out dressed like the lead character of the movie that we were there to watch, and uh, came out to give us a PowerPoint presentation about the educational message from the film. And so the first slide, let's see if you can figure this out by uh, context clues. Uh, The best things in life are, and then slide number one, crush your enemies. Slide number two, see them driven before you. And slide number three, hear the lamentations of their women. That's just too easy. Come in, barbarian. (laughs) Absolutely. So, yeah, one of the series they're having this semester is the Summer of 82 film film series. And that's basically uh, the Summer of 82 was like a great summer for these kind of iconic films that, that that we grew up with, you know, 30 years ago, which that doesn't make you feel old. Holy cow. Uh, but so it started out with Conan. That's uh, Conan was was this week. And then this coming week is going to be Mad Max, the Road Warrior. Then it's going to be Rocky three. Then it's going to be the Wrath of Khan. Then it's going to be E.T., the thing, Poltergeist, Tron. So really this amazing series. And it, it was a ton of fun. It was, yeah. it was really cool. 82 was definitely an amazing year for movies. I mean, granted, none of them did Avengers money, but... Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah, that was awesome. And then uh, yesterday, I actually went to go see Jousting at List on the Lake, which was actually pretty cool, too. Did I ever tell you that my wife and I really got into that Full Metal Jousting TV show? No, no, I hadn't mentioned that. So this is kind of to make sort of a, a geek hobby more of a manly sport. And so they took a bunch of the um, 
the 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 the, the uh, play jousters. People like at medieval times who joust but don't really joust. It's all theatrical. They call them theatrical jousters. And so they said, okay, we're going to really joust. We're going to put you in real armor, real padding, and you're going to hit each other going however many miles per hour on a horse. And you know, if you get if you hit the um, the gritty grand guard, that little shield plate on their their other um, shoulder, you know, one point. If you break your lance, five points. If you knock them off the horse, ten points. Right. Yeah, and the, and uh, also came up with that was the Knights of Mayhem. Who so Full Metal Jousting was on was it Discover or the History Channel? I forget. And then the the Knights of Mayhem was on National Geographic. So you had these two jousting reality shows that were a lot of fun. Uh, Charlie Andrews is the the head guy from the Knights of Mayhem, which was that National Geographic show, uh, and he was there at the at the list on the lake, uh, and he's like a bit of a showboat. He's he's kind of funny, and he actually, you know, not shockingly, he won the joust and won pretty much everything. Uh, but he, yeah, he it was it was a lot of fun. It was a very cool, very cool thing to go see. Yeah, and I mean. Uh... It's just showing that more, more of the stuff is becoming a lot more mainstream. Comic Book Men got um, uh, signed up for a second season. Oh, very cool. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that. A lot of good stuff out there. Is TV so does, that, for... does that mean I should watch the first season now then? Yes. Okay. Yes. I will need to, I'll need to find it. I, I'm not sure. I haven't checked Netflix or Hulu or any of those things yet, so I will look for it. There's only one kind of valid criticism of Comic Book Men in my opinion, and that's that, that they spend a lot of time kind of – I wouldn't say wallowing, but like they spend a lot of time in the past of like past events and, and old comics that are worth a lot of money. And mm-hmm. people crit- criticize them for not covering a lot of the more modern stuff, but unfortunately, a lot of the more modern stuff isn't sexy money, right? Right. There's nothing modern that's worth you know hundreds of dollars and stuff like that. So yeah, well, I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah. So what's on the agenda for today? Well, I think we've got a couple of things. I know I was going to talk a little bit about geek music. And then I was supposed to talk about Diablo 3, but I've actually um, – I have to – the first time we've ever done this, I have to kind of pull that. Okay. And the reason I have to pull it is because one of our most avid listeners, a.k.a. my wife, who I love very much, um, is a huge, huge, huge Diablo 3 fan. And she said, I don't want you to do it yet. I want you to play it a little bit and have a better formed opinion. You know, Let it percolate a little bit. Let it, let it sit. Let it settle. And then, you know, do the podcast so you can really go in-depth and talk about it from multiple angles. She really wants a, a good um, in-depth discussion about it. And so she is like, you know, let's go ahead and I want you to, to just wait on that one. So I'm going to wait on it and uh, we'll, we'll bring it up probably maybe next time or the, the time after that. But for my topic today, um, what I want to get into is I want to revisit – uh, D&D 5th edition, because I don't know if you've been paying attention, Carlos, but some stuff has been moving in there. Um, I've Well, I've been paying attention a bit, uh, but I don't know what you're referring to specifically, so I'm interested to find out. Okay, so um, you want to go ahead and go first? Let's get into the geek music. Yeah, so talking about geek music, one of the things, of course, that I will stress is that geeks are from every walk of life, and everybody has different tastes in music, and geeks are, you know, people who are, who are we consider geeks could be just about anyone, and so obviously we kind of run the gamut in, in our musical taste. You know, I know a lot of people who are, I know a lot of people who are in RPGs who are like big metalheads, I know people who like classical, I know people who like, you know, rock or whatever, anything, any hip-hop, whatever. So geeks are just, I mean, just like anyone else, we've, we've got a wide diversity of opinions. What I wanted to talk about was, um, 
kind of the the music and the things that are that were designed either by geeks about geeky, geeky topics or you know by and for geeks so that basically designed to appeal to geeks in some way um and often that's that that people get really passionate about particular subjects and they'll make music about it right so um so that that's what I wanted to talk about more like you mentioned um it's not all just weird al which is absolutely true and but in um Weird Al is, uh, of course, famous for doing his parodies uh, of, of popular songs and has done some specific geek stuff also, not beyond the parodies, you know, like White and Nerdy and stuff like that. Um, but yes, there's, there's, more to, there's more to geek music than Weird Al. That, that's definitely true. Um, in general, you know, people, especially people who are fans of geeky things like Star Wars, Star Trek, whatever, um, have been making – you know, fan music and fan films and fan stuff for quite a while. And the fan, there's, there's quite a big fan culture around a lot of these, you know, geeky uh, hobbies and geeky areas. Um, we've got a whole series of like anime music videos where people will uh, use the material to, to make videos often to, often to popular songs, uh, which, you know, they used to have contests and actually still do uh, at the different anime cons. You've got like the League of Legend music videos, which I love. I think they're a whole lot of fun where, where people will make songs about playing or about particular characters and do things like that. I can solo mid with no teleport, no teleport. And, you know, you have the regular parodies. Um, so I'm going to talk about those a little bit, but really I wanted to mention uh, a few things specifically. Uh, before I go on, is there anything you wanted to jump in about that? Um, no, I mean, I'll, I'll let you, because I don't want to cover anything you might already cover. I mean, there's definitely, like, um, parts of it I have opinions on, but I want to see what you say first before I don't want to step on your toes accidentally. I understand completely. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, you have kind of more mainstream-ish acts who have talked about geeky things before. Um, you know, uh, Weezer in, in their first, in the Blue Album, it was kind of autobiographical, and they had the song In the Garage, which talks about you know, the Dungeon Master's Guide and a 12-sided die and Nightcaller and Kitty Pride. you know, very, very kind of geek-friendly stuff. You've got uh, Blink-182 who had a song like A New Hope. You had uh, Marcy Playground who had a song called The Cloak of Elvenkind and about hanging in the closet and stuff like that. Um, and, and that's and, and that's interesting. I mean, you, you do have these kind of pop cultural references that come up uh, fairly regularly uh, in music and in other areas. Uh, but you also have um, things that have been created specifically for geeks. And one of the examples of that is uh, Felicia Day, right, who, who is like the uber geek and, and all-around nice person who's come up with her whole new like, geek and sundry uh, podcast channel and, of course, is the writer and star of The Guild. And The Guild itself has done these kind of music music and video type events, uh, starting with Do You Want to Date My Avatar and doing Game On and I'm the One That's Cool. And, and those have done really well. You know, they, they've, they've had the music, they've had the video, they've sold both of them on iTunes and stuff like that, and those have been pretty popular. Um, another video type thing what recently came out was a, a, a great video called Cello Wars by the Piano Guys where they took a bunch of uh, – Star Wars medleys and kind of combine them together and did this really fun Star Wars parody video. 
but you know this geek music stuff has been going on for a while and of course the big impetus and the big way of sharing it has been the internet right i mean because we have the internet we can share this music we can make this music easy with with the you know, digital technologies and, and distribute it um so i know when i was in an undergrad in, in the 90s um i found geek music even on the then burgeoning you know file networks or whatever were just people going putting their stuff out there so one of the first things i found was like a zelda rap that was really interesting uh there was a song uh the allison hannigan song called this one time that was a lot of fun and you were the girl next door i watched from my living room floor over algebra There was this like D&D ballad called The Critical Hit to My Heart. And, and I'll, uh, I'll play those and link those in the show notes. And they're all a lot of fun. So there was also, uh, have you heard the ultimate showdown of ultimate destiny? Uh, is that a, is that a, from the uh, tenacious D? No, this one's a little bit different. It, it, it was, uh, it was like a fan thing where it, it a fan music and, and the music video, but the, I think the song came first where they put all these pop, popular like superheroes or whatever fighting against each other so you have like chuck norris versus voltron versus indiana jones versus jackie chan versus batman the list goes on and on and on and on and on about this epic battle that lasted 100 years between all these characters it was it's a lot of fun and i'll, I'll link that play that too old godzilla was hopping around tokyo city like a big playground when suddenly batman burst from the shade and hit godzilla with a bad grenade godzilla got pissed and began to attack but didn't expect to be blocked by shack who proceeded to open up a can of shack through when aaron carter came out of the blue and he started beating up shaquille o'neal then they both got flattened by the bathroom feel but before we could make it back to the bat cave abraham lincoln popped out of his grave and took an ak-47 out from under his hat blew batman away with a rat of that tat but he ran Um, in the show notes and and yeah it's just it's just this kind of like and, and that's the only thing that I've seen that these people have done specifically but it's it's still a lot of fun um, we also have the darkest of the hillside thickets which is a group that you may guess does songs all about the Cthulhu mythos and actually when they sold the D20 uh, Cthulhu RPG it came with one of their CDs which was kind of neat and they have and they have songs about you know Innsmouth and and uh, Shoggoths away and stuff like that and they're they're a lot of fun too. No, I have to go back to Dunwich tonight. As a matter of fact, 
I should get moving or I'll miss my bus. Someone else. And, and there's also different genres of this type of music. Uh, there's the godfather of nerdcore, MC Frontalot. Have, have you heard him? Absolutely. I was actually that's because I have a list of artists I was going to bring up, and he's yeah. one of the artists I was going to bring up. MC Frontalot is he does a lot of the PAX conventions. He always he has a, a show there, and a, a great performer, right? You know, so some people. Are, are do music, but they don't really perform the music. MC Frontalot is a great performer as well as a great musician. Yes, uh, and I've, I've seen him here at Austin twice. Uh, he came once for when they came out with a documentary uh, that largely starred him called Nerdcore Rising, which was a lot of fun. And he does, you know, rap slash hip hop type music. I love his FAQ because one of the questions in his FAQ is, isn't MC Frontalot just a cheesy rap parody novelty act worth barely a moment's smirking half appreciation? To which the answer is, your mom's a cheesy rap pop parody, <laughs> not the act worth barely a moment's working off appreciation. No more questions. But yeah, no, he's he's a good guy. His group is good. They're a lot of fun. Nerdcore Rising is an excellent documentary. Uh, but he's got songs like Indier Than Thou, which I really like. I have spread out my hands all the day unto a rebellious people. Stand by thyself. Come not near to me, for I am holier than thou. I'm so indie that my shirt don't fit. You want to out loud? Want to laugh? Yeah, why you come so ill-equipped? Because uh, being all prepared to get on the mic is selling out. And I ain't even about to relinquish indie clout. I look confused like I just got out of bed. Rhyme style reflects this. Use my overdeveloped sense of irony to deflect this. Missiles exploding all around me. Unpromoted, don't know how you found me. Soundly situated in obscurity land. Famous and inverse proportion to how cool I am. And should I ever gone a triple-digit fan? Who tell me then there's someone I ain't indie than? It is pitch dark, which uh, obviously starts with the line, you are likely to be eaten by a guru. You are likely to be eaten. You are likely to be eaten by a guru. If this predicament seems particularly cruel, consider whose fault it could be. Now the torture a match in your inventory. Uh, Shame of the Otaku, one of his newer ones, which is a lot of fun. And if you've ever watched fan subs, you'll recognize the last line in that. I put self-loathing at the end of a string. Drag it after me, swing it like it wasn't a thing. And I can sing in Japanese, please don't say to prove it. And maybe I forgot it when the music got in the loop. Did who did tell a lie? Did he mumble? Did this guy hide? Credibility crumbled, double humble was he then, and polite in speech, did he make escape as he escalated out of reach, or is he bringing each and every one of you a message, did he suggest that if you're depressed, a victim presses, not love to get in terms of talking, but I don't understand shame, mama, leave it to you. And of course, he wrote the Penny Arcade theme. Which starts off with uh, L shift O to the quote and then dollar, which if you are a Commodore user, you might recognize. Now let's begin to type some words. Word, word. When I hit it, I hit L shift O to the quote and then dollar. If you know the dur of the nerdcore rhyme, you holler. I hit L shift O to the quote and then dollar. 
of the nerdcore rhyme, you holler, nerd ho, warm the mic up, yo, we bout to strike up this band of nebuchadnezzar to cultivate nebulous fetishes, the FPS, RPG, or MM called, in the obsession to blather over my blog. But yeah, he's a lot of fun, and, and the music he does is neat, and he's really spawned the whole kind of generation of... Uh, this kind of what they call nerdcore rap, uh, which is really interesting because, yes, it is – in one sense, it is this kind of parody novelty act type thing, but also they, they're very sincere. It's not just like they're trying to take advantage of this. It is something that they do. They are making music. They are doing, the, you know, they are doing this thing and enjoying it. So uh, there's a certain type of authenticity involved with this. So I think that's been really interesting. Um, there's a couple of other people I wanted to mention. One of the big names, and this might also be on your list in this kind of geek music type things, is Jonathan Colton. Damn, you stole him from me. I was going to bring him up. <laughs> Absolutely. Jonathan Colton, super famous, super talented musician. Um, one of the interesting things about him is that all, most of his music is shared using a Creative Commons license. And you know that I am a copyright geek, and I find that very appealing. And basically, you know, he gives away his music for pre free and lets people create these derivative fan works, provided that they also give away the music or the derivative work that they do for free. And so he has a really great fan community and fan video community and all kinds of stuff like that. I've also seen him in concert, and he is also a great entertainer. Uh, some of his famous works, of course, include... The theme song, the end scene song from Portal, still alive. This was a triumph. I'm making a note here. Huge success. It's hard to overstate my satisfaction. Aperture science. We do what we must because we can. For the good of all of us, except the ones who are dead. But there's no sense crying over every mistake. You just keep on trying till you run out of cake. And the science gets done, and you make a neat plan for the people who are still alive. Which is a terrific song. Um, Are Your Brains? Also a terrific song about zombies at the office. And that's uh, another the, – the Are You Eating My Brains is one of my favorite ones about you know zombies in a mall and, and stuff like that. But if you ever watch it perform live, everybody like raises their hand. It's sort of a zombie like little yep. claw thing. <laughs> yes, there's audience, all, yeah, the audience participation time, yeah. It's amazing. Yes, I, I, have done, yeah, I have done that as well. I've seen him a bunch of times. He's a lot of fun. Hey, Tom, it's Bob from the office down the hall. Good to see you, buddy. How have you been? Things have been okay for me, except that I'm a zombie now. I really wish you'd let us in. I think I speak for all of us when I say I understand why you folks might hesitate to submit to our your eyes. Uh, Culture Mountain is another fun one. Welcome to my secret lair on Skullcrusher Mountain. I hope that you've enjoyed your stay so far. I see you met my assistant Scarface. His appearance is quite disturbing. 
Code Monkey, uh, which is really famous. Code Monkey is one of my favorites. Yes, mine too. And he was the theme song to that little animated show, Code Monkeys. Yeah. Code Monkey, get up, get coffee. Code Monkey, go to job. Code Monkey, have boring meeting with boring manager Rob. Rob say Code Monkey, very diligent, but his output stinks. His code not functional or elegant. What do Code Monkey think? Code Monkey think maybe manager wanna write goddamn login page himself. Code Monkey not say it out loud. Code Monkey not crazy, just proud. Code Monkey likes Speedos. Code Monkey likes Tab and Mountain Dew. Code Monkey very simple man. Big warm fuzzy secret heart. Code Monkey like. And he was also uh, the contributing troubadour to Popular Science, uh, and he had some, some music released uh, from the Popular Science magazine, including the lots of fun I Feel Fantastic, to which there are some great fan videos about. And of course, there are very few people who can do a really excellent song about the Mandelbrot set, like Jonathan Colton can. So, yes, he is an awesome, awesome guy. And related to Jonathan Colton in a certain uh, way are Paul and Storm. And Paul and Storm call themselves a comedy music duo. We are the opening band. We are here to do five or six or seven songs. Don't go too long and get the hell off the stage. often perform with Jonathan Colton, and they're also known for doing Wootstock. And for people who don't know, Wootstock is this kind of geek music variety show. It almost always has Paul and Storm 
Adam Savage from the Mistbusters and Will Wheaton. And they are, and they often have, you know, depending on where they are in the country, they'll have other guests. You know, they've had Neil Gaiman show up. They've had Jonathan Colton. They've had other people like that. And, and it, it is super cool, super neat. And a lot of really fun stuff comes out of that. One of the other bands I wanted to mention is a pair of sisters out of Portland, Oregon, Angela and Audrey Weber, who call themselves the Double Clicks. And they characterize themselves as a nerd folk duo. Um, they've recently put out a new pair of CDs, and, and they did a really interesting crowdfunding uh, for for their tour. They'd already made the CDs, but they wanted to like go out on tour and perform places. So they had a, a kind of crowdsourcing, crowdfunding uh, deal where you could get their CDs and get them to do stuff and and um, you know perform music different places. And that's how they crowdfunded their entire tour, which is kind of cool. Uh, they're probably best known for the song "This Fantasy World." Which is a song about Dungeons and Dragons, which is a lot of fun. You're sure not tall, and you're not all that attractive, cause you're a level eight dwarf and you drink too much ale. You drink way too much ale, but you've got a nice axe and you know how to use it. It's plus two against the zombies, and the moment. You set foot in this campaign You set a magic missile on my heart And charm person on my brain Dungeons and Dragons Yes, I like playing Dungeons and Dragons with you Yes, I do Yes, I like playing Dungeons and Dragons And one of the other kind of um, a lot of these are, are, like I said, kind of comedy, kind of nerdy type type things like that. There are some of these these kind of geek appealing music that is that it tends to be more serious. And one of the areas that I was going to mention is the brown coats. Of course, if you are familiar with, you know, Joss Whedon and Firefly, you know the brown coats are, are that big fan community that that sprung up around that show. Um, and there have been a lot of music and video type performances related to it. Uh, there's a, a a pair of folks who call themselves the Bedlam Bards, uh, Hawk and Cedric. And I knew them from a couple of places. They played at Renaissance festivals and they've had some fun CDs and stuff like that. And I actually gamed with Cedric once upon a time. Uh, but they came out with a song, a, an album called On the Drift, which was all, uh, brown coat inspired music and uh it became really popular like that based on that and it is it, you know it, they play jane song and then some of the other music from the show but they also play stuff in the style of that universe and that that did really well he rode about spaceships and shepherds and whores stood up to the networks and gave them what for but canceled his program but that was their loss the creator of firefly the man they call joss dogma um, and another person I wanted to mention kind of related to that is Marion Call. Marion Call, uh, she, she was a musician and she won a contest called Sing a Song of Saffron, uh, which Saffron is one of the characters from, from Firefly. And it was judged by, you know, the Bedlam Bards and by Christina Hendricks, the person who played Saffron in the show. You cry now, sweetie. Just you put that gun away. All I did was play the part you wanted me to play. You thought that you were handsome and strong and good in bed. I just agreed with you, and you swallowed every word I said. Oh, honey, did you really think you were special, dear? You. And did you really think I was 
so needy and so weak. I robbed you blind, I left you crying, I played you for a fool. But you're the one who let me admit it. It was good for you too. And that, that, I think, really got her going, uh, especially among the nerd geek community. And she's written and performed and released uh, several albums since then. Um, and, and she includes a lot of stuff that's inspired by Firefly and Battlestar Galactica, but less like humorous and more serious kind of stuff and, and really interesting, uh, decent musician. And also wrote something called The Nerd Anthem. All the cool kids keep enthusiasm rationed Right down to the last explosive ounce But I'd rather indulge my many fashions Even if my squaritude's a little too pronounced Perhaps I do not strike you as a geek Without the horn-rimmed glasses and knee-high argyle socks But nerdery is more than wardrobe deep And I'm a nerd down in my heart And that's where nerdhood rocks I'm better acquainted than a good girl ought to be With Aragorn and Yosef Bridge and Worf and Hal and Han But you don't really know me And my culture don't control me So don't you pigeonhole me Cause my face is set to stun so what did you want to mention? So uh, on my list, and, and you have an exhaustive list, so you've already knocked out a bunch of my, uh, my, my mentions here, but I still got a few. Uh-huh. Um, first of all, Stephen Lynch. Stephen Lynch is more of a comedy musician. Yes. And, and I'm going to give everyone who's listening a, a, a fair warning. Some of it gets a little raunchy, but he has a great one um, that's called It's a D&D. About him and his buddy playing D&D in the basement and having Cheetos and Mountain Dew and stuff like that. Now Tyke's a real bastard, but a fair dungeon master. He's got hit points and charisma to lend. And I rehearse in my room, or what I call a dragon's tomb. When I'm not out with my girlfriend, it's D&D. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Hold on. Sorry. Hold on. I'm sorry. Hold on. Give me one second. What? Dude, come on. <laughs> Seriously. What? You got, you got a fucking girlfriend? Dungeon master. It's kind of a dick thing to say. It's D&D. Summoning the demons of hell. It's D&D. When our ship ends at the Taco Bell. Gordita! Chalupa! Uh, and and a lot of his stuff, I, I think you can just kind of generally categorize as being kind of geek related. Um, I kind of in the same vein as Jonathan Colton, whereas uh, Stephen Lynch is going to be a little bit more rock and roll. Jonathan Colton's a little bit more folk music and stuff. Um, and then of course we have to talk about Optimus Rhyme. Another yeah, another another in the nerdcore-ish type. Another music. in the nerdcore. She's another um, regular at uh, the PAX conventions. Mm-hmm. Uh, another great performer. You know, draws in a good crowd, gives you a good show and stuff like that. Has a lot of good music, all you know, geek related to to varying degrees and stuff. So, Megatron must be stopped, no matter the cost. <laughs>
my god is my tongue and the top I get into lungs. Skeletal system of muscle tissue and I'm done. I'm through. I'm finished feeding frivolous thoughts to my overtaxed central nervous system stretch part. Tighter than a tiger's tooth, talked into a pale face. Hunter from a foreign land, strapped just case after case of ammunition and litigation. No research. Search again, but friend. I, t- I think that it's it's you know one of the things you know say what you want about geeks and nerds you know we're loyal you know that's to, yes. to a fault to a certain degree so you know these people can create a following and, and base their career off of that following just you're talking about saffron right you know she played you know had that that uh the serenity thing going on and, and she can just go on off of that for you know the rest of her career although so, one would hope that she did more but yes <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, exactly. But, you know, it's I'm just saying that, that this stuff yes. just kind of lives on and on and on and on. Most definitely. So a ton of good music out there. And all of it's going to be like I love Jonathan Colton's Code Monkey because I connect to it from a, um, a geek perspective and, and from being, you know, in the IT world. And I love Stephen Lynch's It's D&D because I connect to it from a D&D perspective. So we're giving a ton of different, you know, musicians out there. They're all going to cover – a variety of, of, of geek topics that might connect with you, be it video gaming, tabletop gaming, you know, whatever. So, you know, take, take a listen, try some stuff out. Yeah, and one of the only criticisms I've heard about some of, some, some of this music is that there's a fine line, especially among, among musicians who might not be quite in with the geek community, between, you know, laughing with someone and laughing at, with, at someone. So I've heard some people get really offended by some, some songs and stuff like that, that that tend to poke fun at these geek hobbies. Um, and just, you know, for people who want to go out there and, and do this thing, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, obviously you're not in that group. But, uh, you know, it, it is it is kind of a fine line that you need to watch out for. Yeah, and and you're right. It's a fine line to walk. I've always been of the opinion of you know you can't laugh at yourself. You have to have you have to have a fairly grounded you know self awareness and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. yep. so yeah, um, go to iTunes or Zune or whatever you want. Take a listen to some of these. They they offer you know the 30 second previews for all this stuff. Take a look. Listen. Yeah, to some and, of it. and like we mentioned, Jonathan Colton, Paul and Storm. A lot of these folks either put their music out using these Creative Commons licenses, or put our like MC Front a lot. A lot of his stuff you can download for free from his website. We'll put links to all this stuff in the show notes. Absolutely, absolutely. So, and I think we're going to try and include maybe a little bit about on the podcast here and there. You're gonna you're gonna yes. sprinkle it in through some magical editing. That's right, and we'll know it's successful if you heard music during this podcast. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> very true. All right. So any other um, last little comments you want to leave out with on that one? I think that's mainly what I wanted to talk about. There's like, like you said, there's a lot of great stuff out there. You know, check it out. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. You ready to, to dig back into a little bit of uh, Dungeons? And I am. I want to see what news has been going on. Well, I'm surprised you and I haven't talked about this already because, number one, um, Mont Cook left. Yes, Monty Cook did leave, and I remember I remember that day well because uh, I got a text from BJ while I was at work saying Monty Cook has left D and D. I was like, "What?" Yes, so so I was expecting a little bit more powerful reaction from you on that <laughs> one. Um, and you know, to be honest, him leaving was met with mixed reactions. Oh yes, right? most definitely. Some people like the fact that he left some people were horrified by the fact that he left and a lot of it stems towards people's loyalty to three third edition 3.5 3.75 whatever you want to call it versus 4.0 um monty cook was never a, a big proponent of fourth edition right he he wasn't a, a big believer in fourth edition and you can definitely tell that there are undertones if you read his um 
his blog post where he talks about him leaving, you could tell that there were there were undertones of creative differences and that um, fifth edition or D and D next, however you want to call it, is going in a direction that maybe he doesn't necessarily agree with. Yeah, I didn't I didn't get the sense of creative differences so much as differences with the company because he's still really really and it's still really happy with and talks about his his fellow designers uh that were there and and um so he, you know, like he said it wasn't anything to do with them but it was some kind of difference with the company but um he didn't want to talk about it uh and and because you know it wouldn't be professional so he didn't so i don't know mike merles had an interesting response to that mike merles being one of the one of the leads at watsi right now and one of the lead designers for fourth edition um and he was surprised by it he said which actually surprised me um so yeah and and so it looks like Mike Merles will kind of be taking over in kind of the lead designer position um, that that Monty has been uh, assuming. Um, we don't know how this is going to affect the release date. We don't know how it's going to affect the rules, clarification, or development, or design. I mean, there's so much stuff like kind of left up in the air at this point. So, but it's definitely going to represent a change. In my opinion, I think it's going to represent a change in the tone of how it's handled, right? Because we we talk about so often the the differences between third edition and fourth edition. I'm a big believer in fourth edition. I think it did a lot to help solve the balance issues, but a lot of people didn't like fourth edition because they said it didn't feel like D and D. They said it it reduced it too much to sort of a general um, type of video game mechanics, and and everyone all the classes felt too similar. And I agree with that partly. Um, I, I do think all the classes felt too similar, but I don't like it when people say that it's too much like a video game because they're saying that in a derogatory sense, and I don't necessarily think that's derogatory because you know what? I like video games. So that's not that, – to me, that's not really a really great criticism. I think it needs to be more specific if you're going to have something like that. Uh, I think I think balance was probably the – if not the main goal, but a, a huge, huge, huge main goal in fourth edition. And they approached that in a way that I didn't quite enjoy. I liked fourth edition. Um, I liked third edition somewhat better. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, it was really, it, it was kind of odd. I felt really limited in some, in some ways that I hadn't felt with other editions. So that brings us up to the next big piece of news that I have for you. And they're talking specifically about what that balancing factor was. The newest article released um, just today, Balancing Wizards and D&D. So when we talk about all this stuff, the changes taking place in, in fourth edition, fifth edition versus third edition, realistically, when you get down to it, the brass tacks, they're talking about balancing caster supremacy, right? And when I talk about caster supremacy, and, and I'm sure, Carlos, you, you kind of have your own opinions on this one, but when they talk about ca- caster supremacy, they talk about this difference in that in the lower levels in D&D 3rd Edition, fighters were going to outlast wizards you know, more than anything else because they had more hit points, they could do more damage with their sword, wizards kind of blow their load um, pretty early on because they only have like one or two spells that they can cast. But later on, with the sheer volume of spell variety and combos available, wizards can do the same job of just about everyone else in the in the party to a higher degree. Yeah, and and the same, especially this was very true with third edition clerics. I think were even better than wizards at that in third edition. But yeah, that kind of balance, the the low level, high level type thing was was part of it, certainly second edition as well. Um, and and really with fourth edition, they took a balance across the field all the time. And and there was a bit of a knee-jerk reaction for some people because I think some people enjoyed caster supremacy. Of course, those who 
played the casters, right? I knew um, when fourth edition came out, I knew Patrick was horribly pissed off um, because he couldn't play his super-duper kill-everything cleric by having quickened spells saved in his rings to cast all of his buffs to where he's, you know, a giant and has massive, you know, armor, you know, resistance and a thorn club or whatever. So, you know, he had all this stuff in this very specific combo to just make himself a killing machine um, even though he was a cleric, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that it, you know clerics shouldn't be allowed to to do damage, right? And that's what I loved about Fourth Edition is that they took the role of healing and made it so much to where it was a viable role. You could be a healer, but you could still be effective in that you buffed your party, uh, you could throw some damage out, you could debuff the the uh, enemy and stuff like that. So you didn't feel like you were spending all of your turns heal the fighter, heal the fighter, heal right. the fighter. Although there was also some backlash to that, which is interesting, which they also talked about in D&D Next, uh, because there are people who wanted to do the heal the fighter thing, and actually 4th Edition eventually did address that uh, when they came out with the peaceful cleric, but yeah. That was kind of weird to me. I couldn't understand that criticism, because I, I've played support characters before. I've played healers, and, and I mean, it, it, it to a certain degree, you are just kind of sitting there falling around, like, constantly, like, your hands pressed firmly on the fighter's buttocks, you know, ready to, to heal him in a, at a moment's notice. And, and that's, you know, I mean, some people enjoy that, but it's, to, to me it's, it seems like a very extremely niche role that you could be doing other stuff, such as your minor action to heal, standard action to do something else. Yeah, it's, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, I, when, I, when I played a cleric in 2nd edition in particular, I really liked the healing role. Um, I didn't do it as, as much in 3rd, although I did a bit, um, but... Yeah, it's 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 a difficult thing. I mean, it partly goes down to play style and how you know how mechanical your combats are going to be and stuff like that. Like, what what chance do you have? What chance do you have to shine? Uh, one of the criticisms that I know D and D Next was trying to address, uh, and Robert Schwab, one of the designers, mentioned this, is that uh, a lot of people felt that 4E was kind of a striker show because everybody wanted to be a striker, basically for the most part. Um, and and which and one of the things that they're trying to do is make the classes more. Or, like, there are things that you have to be this class to do, which wasn't quite the same case in 4th edition. Now, to be fair, that's that I don't think that's a, a problem with balance with the game per se, but that's just the nature of the mechanics they used of Defender, yes. Healer, Striker. Like, yes. If you play, and I'm not going to restrict it to World of Warcraft, but if you play any MMO that allows you to cue into sort of an instance thing where you can, you know, go in and, and it's based off of what role you are, defender, healer, striker. Right. And you have that same problem with, with, with World of Warcraft, where you had DPS, you had a lot more DPS than you had tanks or healers. <laughs> so, like, for instance, I played a tank in, in World of Warcraft, and I would spend maybe 30 seconds in my instance cube, if that. Yep. I had, like, foot, uh, buddies who played DPS who could spend an hour. Yeah, and I, I played a healer, and I could get in really fast, especially after Cataclysm. It was no problem finding a, a pickup group. But, yeah, D- DPS people had a much harder time. And so I think that's always going to be a problem if they maintain this this um, the Holy Trinity, right? That's as, as what it's called. And people say, oh no, there's a the fourth world, the controller. Well, 
controller. Yeah. Uh, they kind of, and basically in in later versions on fourth edition, controllers I think got a lot more strikery um, with the buffs to wizards and the buffs to you know the, the, some of the other controller type options. The the idea of the controller was somebody who was hindering the enemy a lot, putting a lot of status effects, a lot of um, slows or yep. dazes and but stuff you, like that. But you know what the best hindrance is? Damage. Yep. <laughs> Put them down. That's right. Put them down as quickly as possible. Yep. So that that's kind of what happened with that. I, I agree. Yeah. So in this new article, they talk about balancing wizards. They talk about wanting to get away from the the pitfalls of third edition and balance it. And if you say, well, you kind of did that in four E, they say, well, 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 you know, for four E, we're not going to make it like four E. Well, first of all, the first thing they say is cantrips will be at will magic, right? So already we know that there's a fourth edition element coming into play. This this at will, you can do it as much as you want. Um, they want the cantrips to have sort of a viable damage solution to where like maybe you have like a ray of frost or a magic missile that does as much damage as maybe a bow or something like that to where you always have a viable damage option outside of your prepared spell. So you never blow your load and you're like, well, I've done all my spells per day. i got to take a rest, right? They talk about the, the five-minute adventuring day, right? Mm-hmm. The five-minute adventuring day mean you get into your first combat for the day, casters blow all of their spells, they're all out of their daily spells, and you have to take a rest again for them to rest and get their, their spells again. So they talk about, you know, that's that's one of the things they try to address in fourth edition with the encounter-based powers, the healing surges, you know, so that there was a a resource um, that was per player basis for healing and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So they, they're trying to address some of that with the cantrips at wills. We've already kind of seen that before, so nothing um, real shocking about that. Uh, keeping spells under control, they talk about wanting to make sure that there isn't like a first level spell that can topple a 15th level NPC. Yep. Glitter dust and grease. Glitter dust and grease. I mean, those two, they, they actually bring it up like a specific yeah. 15th level encounter with an, I think it's like an iron golem. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who don't know, iron golems have horrible balance checks um, to the degree that's actually negative eight. So you could glitter dust an iron golem, which would blind them. Um, I don't even think that has a save or anything, does it? And and it and glitter dust specifically. So there's a mechanic in third edition that you that uh, you have spell resistance, and golems have like infinite spell resistance, so magic doesn't work on them, except for spells that don't that ignore that, like glitter dust. Yes, so glitter yes. dust is yeah is not affected by. So this these two first level spells, if you have them memorized, and most most casters did. Puts down an iron golem completely. A fifteenth level encounter becomes a nothing encounter for this group, right? So they want to take away these niche spells that are overly useful without actually having any real scaling to them. And I'm going to guess, and this is true of the wizard and the cleric. One of the, I'm positive that one of their design goals is they want to make sure that you can't just pop in magic for a rogue. Is probably the classic example, right? Because with one of the problems with, uh, especially with, with third edition, was that you had a wizard, you had a cleric, you had knock spells, you had invisibility, you had stuff that basically um, they could fill almost any role in the party, right, with the right spells. And that I'm sure that is something that they're going to try. They're trying to avoid. They don't necessarily call that out specifically. Like they talk about keeping the buff spells under control, not making haste or invisibility. Um, stone skin, shield blur, you know, not making those such amazingly, you know, good buffs that, that have such a huge effect for everyone. Um, they talk about creativity, not dominance, but they don't specifically call out the fact that, you know, 
with the right spells, a wizard could pull out anybody's role, right? Mm-hmm. I remember, like, in our party back in the old days, um, Jason would cast a spell and make himself into a Rimuraz. Oh, yeah, Polymorph, yes. Polymorph himself into a Rimuraz, mm-hmm. and whatever we're fighting, he would just eat it, and he mm-hmm. would you know, would have to fight the, the, the gullet or whatever, his insides, and it would just get digested. And I'm sitting there as a fighter, like, okay, I'm mm-hmm. swinging my sword, I'm swinging my sword. So... They don't necessarily call that out as being as broken, you know, as it was in third edition, but it's definitely something they have to, to um, tackle. One of the ways they're talking about tackling it, though, is reducing the total number of spell slots, right? Which they have to do because uh, if you're going to have infinite spells like cantrips, which is something that Pathfinder also did, you have to either really reduce the utility of the cantrips or you have to give them less spells overall. So it sounds like they're going to increase the um, the viability of the cantrips, mm-hmm. right, and then reduce the total number of spells. And also, they're going to take away the automatic scaling of the spells, right? That's interesting. So in 3rd edition, the way it used to work is as you gain levels, your spells would be more effective, i.e. Right. like Fireball. Fireball would get an extra D6 of damage for every level that you were. So at 10th level, you had 10 D6. Yeah, that is a really interesting way of, of trying to balance that. Huh. So, so instead, if you wanted Fireball to do more damage, you could not prepare it as a 3rd level spell. You'd have to prepare it as a 4th or a 5th, and that's the only way it could get that increased damage. Which is So that's interesting. Uh, I wonder if Monty Cook was involved with that, because that's kind of how magic worked in his Arcana Evolved system where basically you had like the equivalent of fireball and it did a certain thing at third level but if you wanted to cast do it more damage you'd have to cast it as either use more slots or cast it at a higher slot so uh that is really interesting yeah and i think that worked out really well in that system for my money i think that this is going to work out maybe well in the beginning but because we always see D suffer from the harder medicine syndrome it's going to get worse as more builder books come out. What, what the problem is, I think, is that they never really have a point cost system for creating spells and abilities in that you have to say, okay, um, you have at, at, at level seven or something like that, to create an ability for a character, you have 30 points to mess with. Um, a ability that does 1d4 points of damage is maybe four points. If it does a d6, that's six points or something like that. So you can build the power based off of a point value system if it adds a status effect, if it adds a buff, if it you know costs this or that. You, you need to be able to balance it some way to where everyone's in agreement over what these things cost from how to t- design it. I think that's one of the only ways you can really get balance for a lot of these abilities. Yeah, that, that's kind of tough, though, because magic is so strange. And I know, like, I've, I've written spells for open design, uh, and I've, I've done some things that will be coming out in the next year or so. And it is it is difficult to figure, you know, because you have to figure out how can this spell be broken, abused, whatever, whatever, you know, if it does damage, you know, what kind of damage does it do? So it, it, that can get a little, a little tricky, like Magic Missile, of course was one of the best spells ever in third edition because it it did it auto hit it did force damage which can affect all kinds of things you know so you have to be kind of careful on that um they they did uh paizo actually with one of their more recent books ultimate magic came out with a whole chapter dedicated to exactly that issue how to try to balance spells across the different levels that i think they did a pretty a pretty good job with um and the the uh, the other thing though that I think is a problematic is that for a lot of these splat books we see more spells and all more spells tends to do is give casters more utility and while we see stuff like more feats a lot of times and more more kind of things to help fighters and more martial classes 
that's not the same kind of versatility as having more spells because at least in the past those feats are really limited choices and you have some feats that are that you know they call the feat taxes you have to take them or some feats that will really do your theme and you can't switch them in and out like you can with spells so yeah i think with these like with all these splat books and stuff like that i really think they need a way to give martial characters more options in, in more than they have in the past and that's what really put me in love with 4th edition is because I never really played a wizard. I played a cleric as a support character for a while, um, and, and that's another reason why I like 4th for, edition because I, I could actually do things as a healer instead of just heal. I could, I could heal my round, but I could also do other things. And plus they introduced healers that were not clerics. Thank freaking God. Because it felt like in order to be a healer, you had to be a cleric. My favorite hands-down character from 4th edition was the Warlord. Great healer character, but also a great theme for the character. You know, he was not somebody who who dealt in magic. He was somebody who won battles through good tactics or through inspiration and stuff like that. Um, and they also introduced uh, the the powers in such a way that you felt just as special and effective as a melee-based character, because in 3rd edition, hit it with my sword, hit it with my sword, hit it with my sword, right? Yeah, and, and I think 3rd edition started going really interesting martial characters when they came out with the uh, the uh, Tome of Battle. I thought that had some really interesting martial stuff, but of course that was the tail end of 3rd edition, so no one really got to play with that. And it wasn't really flushed out. I mean, they could have done a lot more of Exactly, that. yeah. And and I think that was starting to show the the hints of how they were going with fourth edition and such and and so uh, what I'm worried about is that as we're paying attention to all this caster supremacy which I, I admit is a problem I don't want us to lose the flavor that um, non caster characters have gained be it your rogues or your your rangers or, or barbarians or whatever I don't want them to lose the flavor that they've gained through the you know the unique powers and the unique effects that they can uh, introduce. I don't want um, the defenders to lose their aggro-based power, right? Because the aggro-based power makes a defender actually a defender, makes them a tank. I remember far too often in 3rd edition, we had a very tanky guy who the GM almost never hit, right? He, what he would actually do is he would, have, he would have to taunt the GM. It was a special ability the person had, you know, call the GM funny names, make fun of his mother, something like that, but, but piss off the GM enough to where he yeah, would actually I, hit the tank instead I, of... I, like, I kind of remember you doing that to Jason a few times. Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and that's the, But that's the only way you could in 3rd edition because you had no way. You could be the beefiest guy in the most armor and it made no difference because the GM had no incentive to hit you. Yeah, and it's interesting. That is one of the things that Pathfinder did a little bit. Like they, they started going into that with feats and stuff like that, but there isn't a whole lot of that type of mechanic in there. And and I think it needs to be in there in order for fighters to be effective at the role that they're really trying. I mean, people say, oh, we shouldn't use the Holy Trinity, but I'm sorry, the Holy Trinity, it, it kind of works. I mean, you can talk about, um, you know, making the strikers not do so much damage or, or some kind of bouncing effect, make them a little bit more glass cannony. Because as it is in fourth edition, I think one of the problems is is that it's really easy to make a good striker and also make them very tough and, and defendery to where they can do massive damage but also be kind of beefy. If you can balance it to where there is that negative to where, oh, I'm a damage dealer, but holy crap, do I you know, get knocked down by a stiff wind or something like that, right? So I, I think there is so, some... So you're advocating making strikers minions. Okay, I'm, I'm good with that. One hit point. I, I, one hit point. Let's let's let's. Set on, on this podcast. BJ called it. All right, that's right. Um, 
I don't care. I don't play strikers. Uh, <laughs> but no, I mean, there is, there's other ways to balance it. I just don't, I, that's my fear with the fifth edition is that we're going to lose the flavor that we've gained in order to bring it back to a system that, while fun, third edition was fun back in the day, definitely had a lot of problems, and I don't want them to introduce those problems again to try and regain that old feel for the game. Well, we'll see. They, they've they said that one of one of their design goals is to keep character classes, they have this kind of unique flavor to them. They haven't really clarified exactly what that means, uh, but they, they, I mean, that's certainly one of their goals. And we'll see. I mean, we got that public play test coming out in about two weeks, is it? Uh, I think so, and God, I hope I can talk about it. Well, I mean, I would imagine if it's going to be a public playtest, they're going to have to lift some of the NDA at least so we can discuss some of the ins and outs and get a little bit more into the beef of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then one of the other things I wanted to, to address with you, uh, they had another article, and this is kind of goes back to a conversation we had in a previous edition sexism and comics. Hmm. So they had an article, Sexism and Fantasy. And. I got to I got to say when I read this article it kind of pissed me off. And the reason it pissed me off is cuz I think it glossed over a lot of the points that we made in that it talks about is it sexism if it's art or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And I mean it it seemed that they just were trying to kind of dismiss it a little bit, right? I have not seen that. I will definitely look at that. And so I was, I mean, there was a lot of, okay, so they had a, they've already had some blowback because of, um, there was a, a, um, a prank that was pulled where they talked about giving different stats for the genders in that women would get minus one strength, but plus one charisma or something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, that was not actually meant to be canon. They would put it as a joke, but a lot of people got kind of pissed off about it. Um, they then released this article that says, well, stuff isn't really sexist. It's just artistic interpretations. They show this picture of Tisha, this this um, tiefling warlock who's from from the comic. From the comics, she's yeah. she's busty and bursting out of her her. Um, I don't even know if you call that a blouse, but there's like a thin line keeping her breasts, you know, barely contained within this thing. And they say that you know. Oh, well, her role doesn't require armor, right? Because she's a warlock. Um, and that um, I, a lot of it is just weird. I mean, I, I don't think they really address this pretty well. There's a lot of good things that you can say about, you know, like we talked about in our episode, you know, there are good, strong, positive depictions of female in fantasies. I, I don't think they acknowledge that well in this article. I will go back and check that out. Um, what was the point of the article? Like, what were they trying to say? I think the point of the article is that they were maybe trying to defend some of their art. I see. Both in the comics and in the books. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I kind of get it, but, again, and and they've had good art. They've had good positive art in the books before. Well, and, you know, when... Um, 
when Confessions of a Part-Time Sorceress, that, that was a book by Shelley Mazenoble, who works at Wizards of the Coast. When that came out, um, they had a forum section specifically dedicated to uh, basically to female gamers. And the questions of sexism and fantasy art, there, there was a whole lot of discussion about that on, on the forums and specifically in that, in that section, which was called Astrid's Parlor, Astrid being the, the, the sorceress. Um, yeah, that is really interesting that they would bring this up again because you think, especially after that, um, it's something that they would have thought about. And I, I kind I am curious about how they're going to be approaching this in, uh, in the next version of, of, uh, D&D. They kind of give some examples of like fashion, you know, um, scantily clad women in fashion. Is that sexist or is that art? And, you know, some of the old, you know, 50 stuff about women and their roles in the household. And, you know, is that sexist or is, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 my problem is, is after reading the article and seeing his point, I don't think they get, did a good job of representing their position. You don't mm-hmm. get a good feel for what they, what they feel is sexist or if they think if they even think there's a problem so right that is interesting yeah i'll check that out and i am i'll i bet you there's a lot of comments <laughs> so i will i'm searching for it now <laughs> i linked it to you in the our, our little chat oh, cool. thing cool, so, cool cool yeah i'll definitely check that out and like somebody i was i was talking to somebody on one of the forums and they were asking you know is there a female equivalent of like conan the barbarian and I was I thought about that and I was like, well, I don't I don't know if there's a female equivalent because I think women and men look for different things in their fantasy icons, right? You mean like like Red Sonia type equivalent or Well, he was he was asking like what do women envision themselves as I see. As quote unquote power fantasy. Right. I, I know exactly what you mean. Conan is considered power fantasy in that he's muscled, he's oiled up, and, and he's you know got women at his legs and stuff like that. And so when women try to env- envision power fantasy, what do they envision? Is is their female role model like all you know bulging biceps and veins and stuff like that, or is it something different? I, I, I don't know right. what it is. Whereas some people would argue that like someone like Red Sonia might be the male thought of what a female power fantasy is, right? Not not being an actual female power fantasy. Yeah, I, I totally get that. I, when I asked my wife um, what, you know, what she considered, she said um, Xena. Mm-hmm. And I found that kind of interesting because, like, we find Xena sexy, but if you go back and watch it, I mean, she's not, like, showing a whole ton of skin. You know, she's got a, um, a one-piece in on, so she's got shoulder pads and all this stuff. I mean, at most, she's kind of wearing a skirt and, and showing off some leg, but I could kind of see that. I was like, okay, so it's it's. I think it, from from her perspective, it's more a matter of um, confidence and power and stuff like that. It's a matter of of um, you know displaying that confidence and displaying that power, but it's not necessarily about being all roided up, you know, and all being you know the bulging biceps and, and what have you. Mm-hmm. But it, again, we're kind of guys taking a, a, a perspective at this. That's why I went and I, I went to my wife and I was like, what do you consider power fantasy? And I had to kind of define it for her and stuff. Well, yeah, and actually, we would welcome feedback on that because I'd re- I am really interested in what people uh, people think about that. We got to revisit that topic, but we have to have a third person, so it's not just a sausage fest again. Oh no, no, absolutely. We know, and we know plenty of people who would be great for it. Yeah, yeah. So I think that would be another good conversation to have sometime in the future with a guest host who can come in and give the female perspective, and you and I can just sit there and be like, oh, okay. <laughs> So a lot of things happening in the world of, of tabletop gaming, specifically D&D. It feels like just a lot of stuff is up in the air. We don't really got a good feel for the direction they're taking the game in just yet. Um, I know that we're going to get that play test. 
I have a feeling that people are going to be both um, ecstatic and, and crushed by it, you know, because mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the geek audience is a fickle group to begin with. Um, <laughs> yes, we are a fickle lot. If you read any forum, people will talk about how second edition was the greatest edition or 3.5 is the greatest edition or Pathfinder is the greatest edition or fourth edition was the greatest edition. There's no – I don't think you can say that on the internet there's a consensus on which was the best. I, I agree. I mean people certainly have their their favorite editions. And really, I mean from my perspective, they all they all had really great things about them. And I think you – I know the edition wars have been super divisive. And, you know, I think people should, people can, can play the editions they like and enjoy them. And we've got, you know, we've got the really interesting phenomenon of retro clones going on right now. We've got, you know, all kinds of stuff based on, on those existing games. I think there's room for lots of kinds of things. And, you know, you and I, I know we play all kinds of different stuff. You know, we'll play, and they might not be our favorite stuff, but we play, you know, third edition, fourth edition. We've played Pathfinder. We play Mutants and Masterminds. We'll play whatever. So, um, I think, I think that's a, decent way to go about it even though we might disagree on specific things we can still play and enjoy all these different systems so yeah one of the things i just don't want DD to turn into is a storytelling role-playing game aka role r-o-l-l versus you know r-o-l-e i don't want it to become like some people really enjoy um the uh not not forgotten realms the um World of Darkness campaigns by um, White Wolf, right? Mm-hmm. I've played those, and I've had a very good time with them, but they're not very tactical-intensive, right? They're a bit more of uh, conceptualized things, right? They use the dot system. A lot of this stuff is told through the storyteller. You don't really get the battle map out or anything like that. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's that's not – I don't want D&D to turn into that. I like the tactical aspect of it. I love the teamwork aspect of it. I love the fact that you get – Four to five people together, and you're saying, okay, our individual parts, we cannot succeed, but us together, we're going to take down that giant freaking dragon. Yeah, the tactical thing is interesting, because I know when I played, like, second edition, never used a tactical mat. Never, ever, maybe once used a tactical mat, and I played a lot of second edition. So it is it is kind of odd, you know, that that that, that is a very fine line uh, that, that they're going to have to be walking. I, well, from my perspective, it's always been sort of a tactical game. It was born out of chainmail. It was born out of a, a combat-oriented... Like a military um, game, yeah, a, min- a miniatures war game, yeah, yeah, yeah. But but even they, you know, when they were doing D and D, didn't always use tactical mats like like Gygax and Arneson. So yeah, it's 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 interesting in the way that it's developed. Um, yeah, that's going to be difficult, and I think they're going to try to address that some with modularity, but I don't know. <laughs> we'll see how that turns out. Any any words that, about you know the potential? Because we know that every time they launch a new edition, they have to launch a, a campaign world, right? So um, in third edition, it was Greyhawk. In fourth edition, they launched uh, Forgotten Realms again. Um, Eberron has become one of the staple campaign worlds. They brought back Dark Sun for fourth edition. Do we know which campaign world they're going to be launching with for D&D Next? No idea. I have not heard anything about that. Okay. I think that in order for them to be truly successful, they need to launch, you know, do a good launch of the campaign world, but also have something set up for people to really just start digging into it from level one to level 20, right? Have a campaign that takes people through that, that true, that full campaign, that full leveling experience, whatever it is. I don't know if their cap is going to be level 20, level 30, but um, an adventure path campaign so people can get in, play all levels of play, be it, you know, level one to, you know, whatever. Yes. 
And then I think that it, it, that will solidify people. You know, just like we talked about last time, if you have content for people to play, they'll keep coming back. Yes, I agree. You need they need to have that that strong campaign setting. They need to have adventure supporting that campaign setting. Like I really like the Neverwinter campaign setting book, but they didn't have the adventure support for it, and that is something that they really need to have. So. You know, the Neverwinter campaign setting pissed me off so much because if you went to like Dragon's Lair, Rogues Gallery, your local gaming store, whatever, they would have these cardboard cutouts set up that that mm-hmm. were you know the Neverwinter campaign fight for the crown, mm-hmm. and I was like. Oh, holy crap, we're going to have an adventure. we got to find out who the next King of Neverwinter is going to be. That's going to be awesome. And you didn't. Yep. You had sort of the start of it, like maybe the first eighth of that or what have you, Mm -hmm. the the, the very small inklings of it, and then nothing. Yep, and then no support for it ever again. (laughs) And you're sitting there like, this is a hugely missed opportunity. If you would have just given us the entire adventure to where – me and my buddies can play level one to whatever, and either an NPC that we help rise to power or one of us rises to power. Oh, my God. It would have been awesome. That would have been terrific. Yeah, I agree. I think that was a missed opportunity. That that would have been so cool. But so. it's like this missed opportunity, this, this, this mistake they keep making over and over and over again. Forgotten Realms launched with no official you know, campaign adventure to play off of. Mm-hmm. Eberron, uh, all these things just came and went with you know, Dark Sun. They, they launched these campaign worlds with nothing. Yep. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I, call me cynical, but I feel this is a mistake they keep making. And and someone I, I was reading on the forums, someone's like, oh man, fourth uh, third edition had amazing adventure support. The RPGA did a ton of stuff, and I was like, ha ha ha. A lot of that was player generated content. Yeah, I mean, we you and I both have writing credits for RPGA. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and and lots of people we know have writing credits for RPGA. That was that was player generated largely, and there was some direction from above, but uh, mostly no, mostly it was just people having really cool ideas, writing it, getting the official stamp of approval, and putting that out there. So yeah, and the circle would release like um, I think it was like each season or something like that. They released like maybe five or six official campaigns, campaign, yeah. but you never really got into those as much as you got into your local campaigns, right? The regional stuff. Yeah, with your and that was all done by the triad player run stuff. I, I mean. Uh, Yes, I think the reason that I do have fond, fond memories of third edition is because there was some epic stuff that we played there, and and it was really cool stuff that we played for a very long time. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Hopefully they do it again, but we we don't know what's going to happen yet. Yeah, yeah, because they've they've kind of they've kind of let a lot of the that that RPGA type stuff fall by the wayside. So they have it now, and it's officially sanctioned, but it's not actually really run by Watsi and. Yeah, I think, and I think that was actually a big part of that that three experience. I agree. I mean, from 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 my perspective, and and I know some people are going to disagree with me or get a little offended by this, but from from my perspective, when we know the people who are running that stuff now locally, it, it kind of feels like the inmates are running the asylum. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, I, I'm not entirely sure what you mean, but okay. Oh, you know. Okay, so you know what I mean. Some of the people that mm-hmm. we maybe didn't agree with were the best representation of our groups. 
Oh, okay. Now I know what you mean. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, we had, we were lucky when we started playing. We had, uh, Tom Brister, super, super charismatic guy, super passionate guy, really into this stuff and really gathered. I mean, he's the reason that I know BJ and, you know, and he really gathered a lot of people up, uh, and, and, and made a really, really interesting group to do with this kind of what they call the living campaign, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, uh, and yeah, I think that was really successful. And after he left, you know, people, and of course, you know, people have kids, get married, all kinds of stuff happens, uh, and these groups, like like a lot of D and D groups, kind of tend to drift apart. Uh, and yeah, and sometimes some of the people around are not necessarily, they're not quite as personable, let's say. I know, I know, Tom. Yeah, I mean, how, how do I say this? Tom Brewster was the greatest GM I ever played with, and he taught me that the game wasn't about you versus the players. The, t- the game was about you facilitating an experience for the players. That you were there to help facilitate it and make it fun for them, challenging but not killer, right? And and he was so good at it. He was very enthusiastic about the NPCs he played and about how he set it up. He was very fair in his rulings. I mean, I don't know if he's still running. Uh, anyone who's ever run with him will, you know, I think we'll all have the same story that he was an amazing GM. I learned so much from him on how to GM, and I, I feel that my current method for how I GM is is inspired a lot by how he um, would run the game for us. I'm much more in favor of saying yes to the players now. Um, and hey, BJ. What's up? So actually, one of the requests that I got for a future topic for the podcast is GMing. And things that we – how do we think we might be good GMs or help people be good GMs? So I think that would be an excellent topic maybe for next week for us to talk about. I think that's a great idea. You and I both have a lot of um, experience from, from both GMing with the, the RPGA and in the home campaigns and then GMing a, a variety of different campaigns. So, yeah, I think that's and, – and, and I'll just give this little teaser. I think learning how to GM well – will help you in other aspects of your life. And the reason I say that is because a lot of the skills I picked up from learning how to run a, a, an efficient and successful campaign, transition and being able to do my teaching over in Japan really well, and also the work I do in the IT industry. So the, the skills there are transitional to other aspects of your life. I would totally agree with that. So, yeah, um, we'll go ahead and talk about, um, I don't know if I would call it a beginner's guide to jamming, but, you know, maybe here are the elements that you should, you know, be prepared for, how to think on your feet, you know, stuff like that, Mm -hmm. Um, get into some GM tips and tricks. That sounds great. Yeah. And um, anything else we you want to cover next time? Um, I've got some ideas. Let's uh, if if we want to make jamming one of the things, or if we want to talk more about more than jamming, I have other things we can talk about too. Then we'll uh, have a mystery topic. That, that's next right. Time. That's so, um, so yeah, I think we're, we got a good st- thing on the agenda next time. Oh, sounds very cool. I think uh, we're probably about time to wrap it up because I'm going to have to go back and edit in stuff. Hopefully. <laughs> Alrighty then. So I think that'll wrap it up for uh, this uh, week's edition of Coming Out of the Basement. My name is BJ. Yeah, I'm Carlos. You can find us at comingoutofthebasement.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at COTB1, and you can always email us at podcast at comingoutofthebasement.com. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you, guys. Have a great one.